0: That was where I went, I don't want to do this job anymore. I'd realized that the parts of it that made me happy were no longer. And so that's a good reason to not do a job. If you can say the things that make me happy are X and this doesn't provide X, then that's a good reason to quit.
1: This is Chan with The Plan the Podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Austin, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks so much
1: for having me. So we talked offline and you have a wealth of experience in the HR industry. So why don't you tell my listeners more about what you have done in your career?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I started right at high school, managing bands, going on tours and doing on tour management. And so that was kind of where I first interacted with HR, which is a really interesting place to deal with HR because basically you're hiring people who are going to live with you. Like you hire someone and then they live, you know, one bunk above you for the next four months. So like the stakes are really high on getting things right. So then after about eight years of doing that, I then left that industry and I went into theme parks. So I was then a senior executive at a small theme park. And my first duty when I got there was I had to hire 500 people in one month and then make all of the organizational things, decide who was going to be a manager and then run those people for the next six months. So that was really interesting. I learned a lot from that. And then from there, I went and did some consulting work for a while and then landed at a real estate investment startup called Equity Help. So I was one of like the first five employees there. And then I managed HR, sales marketing, as that company grew, winning awards for growth three years in a row. And during that time, hired about another 100 people or so. And yeah, that was basically my experience with HR. All
1: very, very fun. So you said that you hired 600 people. So what type of roles did you fill?
0: So it ranged really widely. Some roles were where I was hiring people who would be my equals, which is always interesting because you have to wonder about what those challenges are going to be like. Is that person going to be an asset to you or are they going to be a challenger or you know, will they be an asset to the company? I've also hired very, very low Level So when I was doing like the theme park, for instance, I was hiring people who were, you know, minimum wage, kind of a dime a dozen type roles doing concession stands. And it was like Halloween based, so scaring people and all these sorts of things. And then I've hired everything in between HR, accounting, you know, sales, marketing, executives, a lot of developers now with my new company. I think that one of the biggest things with hiring is you have to realize that the people in front of you, their job is to lie to you, which sucks, but it's the reality, right? So every time that you've ever gone for a job interview, in your mindset, you weren't thinking, okay, I'm gonna try to be my most authentic self and let them really know who I am and then they can make their own judgment on it. Instead, your mindset is like, okay, how will I get this job? How do I make sure that I appear to be whatever they're looking for, which is basically lying. Not that it's wrong, but when you're on the other side of the table and you're doing a lot of hiring, you have to realize that that person's job is to lie to you. And your job is to figure out what they're going to be like, not now, when they're still in the, that new relationship, feel vibes or whatever, but instead three, four months down the line when they are their true selves. And you have to figure out how those people are going to mesh with the other people on the team. Are they people who are going to be growing? Are they people who are going to be stagnant? You know, lots of value for lots of different roles, but you definitely have to like think with who you're hiring for and the people around
1: them. You make a good point about the trying to make a good first impression, right? It's similar to dating where you're going all (laughs) guns out, right? But then like you start to get to know them and then you realize who they truly are. Again, it's very tough to figure out how they are authentically in a normal situation when you're basically trying to evaluate them in an hour, right? So how were you able to pick up people who were fake, so to speak, and who are more authentic? Obviously, there is gonna be some polished professionalism during the interview, but who is more natural at it compared to others? So you'll hire someone that seemed really good when you met them and now they're very toxic.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because I mean, like you said, in a relationship, that happens all the time. You know, you're on your first date and you're like, no, I never go through my girlfriend's phone to see who they're texting. Of course I never do that. And four months in, they're like, (laughs) you know, figure out the password. So when you're interviewing people, The delay in which someone answers a question is a really big identifier. So if you ask them a question like, so, okay, so back it up. The first thing that you really want to do is make sure you ask like open-ended questions. You don't want to ask questions that are yes or no, and you don't want to ask questions that have obvious answers. As an example of that, when I first started at Equity and Help and I got their hiring questionnaire, the one that they've been using, one of the questions on there, which is completely useless, was, okay, so you see someone who stole office supplies from the company, what do you do, right? And so a question like that, although you could think it might give you some useful information, it actually tells you absolutely nothing. Because that has a very obvious answer. And so everyone's going to answer it the correct way. Meaning that whether or not they would have actually went, oh, great, you're stealing stuff, give me some, or not, they're never going to tell you that in an interview. So it's a pointless question to ask. So you have to ask questions that you know speak more to their character and that are not obvious. Like, what sports do you like right a question like that is so ambiguous that someone is going to have a hard time understanding how they should answer that question and so you yourself have to then understand you know if you're going to ask a question like that about sports you have to have an understanding of sports how different sports operate as teams you know certain sports like golf are more lonesome versus a game like football which is more team based you know whatever you can gain data from that but you have to be prepared to do the work they're not going to give you an answer that tells you the answer. They're gonna give you an answer and you're gonna have to do the work, right? So paired with that, the other thing you have to be really careful with is quick answers. So you never want someone to give you a fast answer to a good, ambiguous, open-ended question. Because that tells you that it was prepared and that they are answering in a way that they think you wanna know, right? So you want that pause. You wanna go, what's your favorite sport? Oh, that's interesting. I guess I like golf. Right. That's a real answer versus what's your sport? Golf. That's a fake answer, generally speaking. I mean, there's more things to it than that, but you definitely want to like have the right amount of pause.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite stories that i like to tell is when I did this interview way back, where do you see yourself in five years? And I, there was no pause. I immediately said my answer about, like, oh, I'm planning to stay at the company and all that. Right. And then he actually called me out saying, did you prepare the answer beforehand? I tried to save myself, but I think the interview was done at that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, like that's a great question that, you know, is a little bit ambiguous. So sometimes you get a good answer, but it's obvious, right? Oh, I want to continue with a great role in this company. I want to be the most productive person of this company. No, you don't. That's not your goal going into this company. You're applying for like 10 different companies. So obviously that's not you, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So If you delay too long, then it seems like they're trying to fabricate a story that would appease you. If there's no pause, then it looks like you had this question practiced over and over again on your own time, and now you're using it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the right amount of pause is really important. The other thing is, I really like challenges. So if you're going to interview someone for a position, then you want to put them in a situation where they're going to solve problems similar to what they are going to have to solve in that role, right? So I would say you never want it to be too similar. So for instance, when I'm hiring a developer, a big task that developers need to know is how to research stuff, right? So a lot of times I'm going to be giving them problems. Hey, can you make this type of calendar? And it's going to integrate with these sorts of things and it's going to have these colors. So they're going to have to do some research on how to build that or something that already is like that, that I can use, right? And that's a big part of working with a developer. So instead of asking them questions specifically about developing, which, okay, they might already be familiar with that specific application or something that I'm going to ask them about. I'll instead ask them like a research question. Like, okay, can you go onto Google and find me the answer of, you know, what's the largest amount of grapes that have ever been inside of container? Something, I don't know, not that, but the point is it would be something that doesn't have a good Google answer, right? If you're going to test someone on something like that, you want to make sure that you already have it figured out beforehand. I have a great one. I'm just not going to share it here because it would ruin it. But you want to make sure you've researched it and that if someone Googles it, the first response that they'll find is the wrong answer, right? So for instance, if you were going to tell people how many, what's the largest amount of grapes ever in a container and they Googled it and the first thing that comes up says is a response about not grapes, but instead marbles, then that's a great one because you're going to eliminate people who aren't really going to do the work, who aren't really committed to finding the data, who would, you know, see a problem and then kind of turn tail. So something like a physical test like that, where they're going to have to look through a few pages, read, you give them 10, 15 minutes, and then they come up with an answer and then you can grade that answer on how right it is. That will give you a really good understanding of that person in multiple ways. Did they duplicate your question, right? You should have some confusing language in your question. Did they persevere? You know, were they able to Google it? All these things you can get from some like physical tests that are job related, but not so specific that,
1: yeah. Okay, so we talked about like how people could like fabricate stories, right? What type of like content in the story do you know where like, okay, this guy's just making it up as he goes?
0: Oh, that's a good question. So the most basic is... So someone takes a while and then they start giving you some answers to a question, you basically want to look for flattery, right? So anything that seems like too correct, right? So you're giving an example of someone saying, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And if their answer is too like specific or perfect for that thing, then yeah, that's probably not true. Now, a lot of times when someone answers a question and it's a decent answer, you're not really going to be able to tell on face that that is a true or false answer And even if it's true or false, that's not necessarily going to eliminate the applicant. What's really important is the follow-up question, right? Because if someone is lying and you ask them some follow-up questions, they're going to quickly get, you know, chalked up. Like, if you're like, oh, well, where I saw myself was at this company in blah, blah role. And they're like, great. Well, when did you come to that decision? You're like, uh, five minutes ago, uh, an hour ago. Like, what inspired you to care about that? How long have you been following our company for? What was, you know, your first interaction with the brand? Like things like that, someone will very quickly go, okay, yeah, you're right. That wasn't true. Or if they do have answers, you're going to learn even more about that person and how much they care about things or the type of research they do. So follow-up is really important. Like I would say, just go on a little bit longer. Like the one thing that you want to make sure you do is you have questions prepared, but you don't stick to those questions. Like continue to think and ask and have a conversation. That's really important.
1: You're supposed to prepare for interviews, right? Because you probably can tell when someone's trying to wing every answer and someone to actually prepare, right? But it goes back to like, how much do you prepare where where it doesn't become so like manufactured and prepare in regards to, you know what you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the role too. There's so many factors into hiring that I think in order to be a good HR person, in order to be a good hiring manager, you Mm -hmm. have to really know what role it is that you're looking for, and then what traits are going to help someone with that role. So someone who's really, really prepared, over-prepared, has fake answers to every question, that can actually be really useful because it also tells you something about that person's personality. So if someone was going to be like, I don't know, an assistant or like a paralegal, and they did that much fake research into the thing, it doesn't really matter what their personality is, because A plus, that's what I'm looking for, is someone who would do that level. And if it's believable, then great. You're a great paralegal for me. Right. Now, if someone did all that research and you were looking for, you know, a coder or someone who baked bread, well then that's pointless. That's not going to tell me anything and that's useless. So it really depends on what role you're looking for.
1: To go back to what you were saying in terms of the interview portion, the standard phrase is that. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. So what type of personality traits are you looking for when someone answers a question?
0: So again, I would say that it really does depend on the position, right? So if you're someone who's going to be, so there's two kind of ways that I could give advice to someone. If you're trying to hire for the position, then you have to do the research as the HR manager to know what types of answers or what types of traits you're looking for, right? Because someone who's very confident, overconfident, a little bit Neurotic, okay, but they're a salesperson for a high end product, then that's probably fine. Or, you know, they're a little bit timid, they're reserved, they don't open up easily. Well, okay, they're an accountant. That's perfect for that, right? So you have to do the research first if you are the hiring manager to know what you're looking for and then look at that. Someone who's great in one position will be terrible in another. So never try to like just hire sharks because that will lead you to a bad company that doesn't have a balance of personalities. So if I'm talking to the person who's applying, I would say a job is so permanent. A job is such a huge part of your life that to overly prepare or overly, you know, lie or make up a persona to get a job is one of the worst things you could possibly ever do for yourself ever, right? You're much better finding a role where you can be yourself, you know, maybe a little bit more proper, maybe, okay, you don't let out some gas, but You know where you're going to be yourself in that interview and you're going to find a role that really is going to feel you because it's a third of your life you're giving away. It's a third. That's what you're trying to apply for in that interview. So when you try super hard to just get that one role and you're not making sure that it's a place for you, then you are doing a third of your life a disservice and you're setting yourself up for misery.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's 168 hours in a week and 40 to 50 of them is... Actually it could be more than that because you have the drive to work, right? Yeah, and you think about it
0: when you're not there and talk to your wife about it or your husband,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. So like that's why you shouldn't have a persona to appease an employer because like you have to put up that charade as you go on, which goes back to the dating example. Yeah, you're putting up the charade now, but like are you gonna keep going through that for like a few years in a row, right?
0: Yeah, like I had a friend who would always run into relationship problems because they would go into dates and stuff like that with like you know, this very, very manicured, I'm not neurotic, I'm not needy, I'm not whatever. And then four or five months in, they would always run into problems with their relationships where the person would leave them. And they'd be like, what's wrong with me? We were so happy in the first three months. And I'm like, you weren't so happy in the first three months. You were fake for the first three months. And then you got real and then they left. That doesn't mean anything about your worth. That meant something about the worth that you pretended to have instead of finding someone who's interested in your true worth. So I'd say like, the whole job world of both the HR manager and the employee is much better when two people are being really authentic and they're then finding the roles that they and the teams that they operate really well in, you know? So it's hard, obviously, when you don't have a job and you need a job to then say, okay, well, I'm going to be a little bit rude because that's who I am in an interview. But I would say that, you know, dollars for donuts, it'll be worth it. If you just are yourself, it'll be worth it. You'll find the role for you and you'll be happier.
1: Yeah, go back to what you said before, again, about a manufacturing persona. Again, these people are looking for something specific, not just the skill set. it's the personality as well. So if mm-hmm. someone's looking for someone that's, as I said, more confident, it might fit better in their culture compared to someone that's more timid that might fit in another culture, right? So yeah. yeah, you shouldn't take it personal. It's not necessarily a knock on your skills. It might not be a good personality fit. Again, yeah. Going back to the dating example again, like you're not going yeah, to exactly. like every girl or guy that you go out with, right? <laughs> they might be good people, but you might not be meshing well for whatever reason.
0: They're not your soulmate. Like Your work is no smaller commitment than your marriage or your dating life. It's the same level of commitment. So, you know, take it seriously.
1: Exactly. And as you said, you've hired 600 people throughout your career. What are some like red flags that you've seen on like resumes and again, the interview? Even though some people might be looking for something different, I think that there's a certain amount of like red flags that are common in regards to like what position you're interviewing for.
0: So, definitely a big red flag is when people leave their position a lot, you know, like these jumpers can depend a little bit on industry. But for me, if I see someone who hasn't held a role for more than a year over the past five or six years, then that tells me something about their commitment level. And I'm not interested in that whatsoever. So one of the things is like when you give references, make sure that you give references who are going to be honest. So it can be really hard. Like when I've gone and I have two applicants that are really, really interesting, right? I'm going, these two applicants I could definitely hire, right? And I'm trying to figure out and make that decision. I'm going to call their references. I'm going to call their personal references or their professional references. And so so a lot of times those references will refuse to give a true answer of that that person, right? So if I did my interviews with these two people and I couldn't really figure out who they're going to be three or four months from now, and I'm still trying to figure out, I'm going to call the references to get more information, not for someone random to just say, yeah, they're great. You should hire them. So when you... Put someone down as a reference. Make sure it's someone that can give an honest feedback about you. Because if there was one guy who had three references who all said, yeah, he was the greatest person I ever worked with. I loved him. And then I had one person who said, okay, he's great. He can be a little bit forgetful about stuff. But where he really excelled was blah. I would hire that guy, even though he had worse references, quote unquote, because I felt like I learned something. Whereas the other person, I still feel like I don't know. So- that would be one of the big things with your references make sure that they're like you told them hey give them some actual data you know don't just appease them other red flags on a resume depending on the role i mean that someone can do something about but definitely like too big of roles or really extensive college degree can sometimes be a red flag on a resume because it tells me something about especially degrees it tells me about their income demand so when someone had you know, graduated from Yale, and I'm interviewing them for a post that's going to pay twenty bucks an hour. I'm much more likely to hire someone who didn't go to college because I don't need that degree, and I know what entitlement or what income and demand or whatever that degree will hold. So I'll usually shy away from those if I don't need it. I remember I once applied for a job at a company called No Before, which is now like a billion dollar tech unicorn. When I applied for them about a year or two before I started Equity Help. And so when I went there, I had a lot of experience in very high leadership roles. And the role I was applying for was not of that same level. The pay was actually pretty great, but it was more in a customer service based position. Now, as that company ended up growing, I probably would have ended up in a very high leadership role at that company. I maybe would have been happy. I know many people who work there. It's a a local company I know before. But when that guy looked at my resume, he said, hey, I'm not going to hire you for this position because I don't think you're going to be happy in it. And so that was a good example of him looking at something and going, okay, well, you know, someone who's been a C-level exec or an HR manager and now customer service, that's a bad fit. So, you know, make sure your resume really fits the role you're going for.
1: Speaking of being overqualified, such as education, some smaller companies, they have inflated job titles, right? So let's say it's a 10-person startup and then there's some guy that's a VP of marketing. And then they apply for a bigger company and they saw that VP of marketing title, even though they should be at most a senior manager at a bigger company. What's your thoughts on that in terms of like title inflation on the resume?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it depends on the person a lot because some people will fake it till you make it and they'll completely kill that role. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying where like, if you're going for a role that's not the VP of marketing and you have that on your resume and you know that it's not really going to give a good reflection at that larger company, then just knock it down. Don't put VP in marketing, say marketing manager, right? Just put that there because someone who's hiring a marketing manager is more likely to hire someone with experience as a marketing manager than they would hire someone with experience as a VP of sales.
1: Got it. Oh, it makes sense. And how about like from an interview perspective, what are some like red flags? Obviously we talked about like fabricating stories or delaying the way you answer or answering too soon. What other types of like things that professionals do in the interview that turns you off
0: not relaxing so a good interview is a conversation right it's a conversation it's relaxed when i am interviewing someone especially for an important role i talked a little bit earlier about how different personality traits can be good for certain things but if i'm talking to someone into like a higher role like a senior executive a manager or something like that and the whole time i can tell that they're like on then That's an immediate red flag, right? Because I'm trying to get to know them. HR people are trying to get to know you. It's a date, right? You should smile. You should laugh. You should, you know, slouch a little bit. So definitely likes people who, hi, I'm looking for this position. No, you're not going to get the job.
1: Yeah, in my experience, right? Like if it's a ping pong, what I mean by that is like, You ask a question, they answer. You ask a question, they answer. And there's no like small talk or conversation in between. Mm -hmm. It becomes very inauthentic and very robotic. And they don't really, yeah, like this person seems qualified, but I don't really connect with them. I don't really feel like I would work well with this person. Again, it goes back to, uh, they have to imagine, especially if you're interviewing with a hiring manager, their mind is that, yes, I need this person to be qualified, but I also have to work with this guy or girl every day, right? So I Mm -hmm. want to enjoy my time working with them. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I mean, like, if you were going to try to ace an interview, right, if you were like, you really wanted that job, um, as I said, you do have to be authentic, but try to, as the interviewee, try to find some things to bring up that are going to be a little bit more personal, right? So look around their office, right? If you love Star Wars, and you see something that's even a little bit comic book-esque, you might as well say, hey, I noticed blah over there. Do you happen to like this? And then there's immediately some rapport. You might have something to laugh about, and that's going to make a great interview. Like, it's not like the manufactured answers that's going to get you the job. It's making that connection because I would say, like, an inexperienced hiring manager is going to be looking at, you know, at least two to three candidates and then picking the best one, right? A great hiring manager for any role, no matter how small, they're going to be looking at at least 20, 30 candidates, and they're going to be looking for not a certain amount of candidates, but instead looking for something that sparks. but somebody that goes, that guy, he's got to be on the team. And so that's one of the really big problems with those canned, overly rehearsed answers is you're never going to stand out because that's what everyone's going to do. You instead want to, you know, make that connection. You want to ask them some good questions. Oh, okay. Well, do you have any kids, right? As the interviewer, do you have any kids? Do you have some family? What towns have you been to? Oh, I love traveling. Have you been to these places? When I'm in an interview and I find someone who's actually taking interest in me and is like, you know, bringing that comfort level, then I'm instantly more inclined to go, well, yeah, maybe that person would be a good fit.
1: Okay. In regards to the kid's question, right? There's some things that shouldn't be discussed, right? That's what I heard at least. So what's your thoughts on that? Like, is there some stuff that you're trying to be personal, but you don't want to get too personal because there might be some like legal issues? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, obviously.
0: So two sides to that. Obviously, as the interviewer, there's many things you can't say. You can't ask their age. You can't ask their gender, their sex or sexual orientation. You can't ask those things. But as the interviewee, there's not really legal stuff. It's not like it's illegal to ask these types of questions. So in general, I'd say you can be lustric, but you also have to kind of read the room, right? I wouldn't say it's more of a legal question if you're the person that is being interviewed. It's more of a question of like, who is that person? So if that person themselves is very straight up, and you know doesn't have a lot of personal effects on their desk or whatever, then yeah, you probably don't want to ask anything that's like too personal about their family or about, you know, their history or whatever. But you know, if you come into an interview and the guy has some tats and a beard or whatever, yeah, ask about his tats. That's not gonna bother him, you know, or whatever. Obviously there's a lot of different things, but like I'd say in business in general, but especially when you're hiring on both sides of the table, being present is what really matters. Like being there in that interview in that moment and enjoying it. Right. So this shouldn't be like a horribly stressful or like, Oh, another interview. You should go in there and be like, great, I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to connect with someone. That's your goal. And so if you keep that in mind and you're paying attention, then you should be fine.
1: Yeah. And we can give as much advice that we can on this podcast to job seekers, but at the end of the day, you really have to read the room, read the person to get a feel for what they'd be receptive to. Right. So what we say, like if you don't put into the context of the room, it might not actually work. So again, you really have to be, like you said, you have to be present and really understand the environment you're going into to ensure that you're saying the right things and you're building the right rapport. Yeah. And the information that's going out there is like recruiters, they skim resumes, right? They don't like fully read them. They Never. don't spend like five minutes for resume because that's be very time intense, right? So, when you skim resumes, like what do you look for really quickly to mm. make them go from the no pile or the yes pile?
0: So, I look at their job history, like pay a little bit of attention to the roles. I mainly look at the company name. Oh, yeah, okay, maybe that would be interesting. I kind of look at it there. Education, as I said before, it tells you a lot about. Depending on the role, either you know that commitment to school, whatever, is valuable, or they're going to ask for a lot of money, so it's not worth it. Those are like the two major things. I don't really look at like their name, their references, any of that stuff unless they end up in the yes pile, it's mainly just like companies. Maybe that one's interesting when to look a little bit more at what they wrote. And then, yeah, if there is like education or certificates, depending on what that matters.
1: Okay. And what do you look for specifically in the work experience when they highlight what they've done in those roles?
0: I mainly just look for similarity. Sometimes I'm a big believer in hiring someone who's less experienced for the role because I like to see people grow into it and I like saving the money on the payroll, to be honest. I'd much rather give raises to people who have been working there than hire someone who's already at a little bit too high. So I usually look at experience to see, I'm not always going to see exact experience to what I'm hiring for, like customer service, I'm not going to find a bunch of customer service experience, but I might find something that looks detailed about people. And so if they've done like, they're a receptionist and they're now looking for customer service, go, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'll kind of continue from there. Yeah, it's really hard to tell from a resume, honestly. I would almost say that they're pointless. They're not pointless for sure. Like you definitely have to go through them. But I would almost say they're pointless because, I mean, a resume doesn't say anything about someone.
1: Got it. does not really say much. How do you know like right away, right? Like you said, like education and like other things, right? Mm-hmm. All right. A lot of my listeners are also going to career transitions and you have an interesting story of how you started software companies in HR without any technical experience prior. So why don't you dive into more of that aspect of your career story?
0: Yeah, sure. So I was at a company called Equity Help, which is a real estate investment startup. When I got there, there weren't many people. I actually started there just as a consultant. And when I got there, a lot of people were kind of asking me how to do their job, even though I didn't know anything about real estate investing. So when I ended up taking a role there, mainly just because it was so much fun, I had worn a lot of those roles and figured out a lot of the hats. And so the policies and the written SOPs were all written by me and, or not all, but a lot of them. And so I was was hiring people and people would quit and I hired new people. I started to realize that I could use software to make those jobs easier so that when someone stepped in, they wouldn't have to learn all of those individual steps. They can instead press a few buttons and have it do those individual steps. So that was kind of how I got into software as a whole. Now, when we first started that journey, I was always the person in the office who also knew about computers. I was over HR, IT, sales, and marketing, and purchasing homes, right? So quite a bit. And so I was always you know, the person in the room who understood the computer speak and all that sort of stuff. And we hired a company, and they were fine, but they didn't really get a good understanding of what we needed before they started building. And so it ended up bringing us, wasting about a year of the company's time in starting to use something and then realizing that it was built the wrong way and then whatever. So we ended up getting rid of them and I decided to hire my own developers, just individual developers. And I said, hey, I'll figure out how to run them. So I started figuring how to run them. And then I realized that I needed to code in order to be able to fix their work or make little modifications or even just know what they were doing. So then I started self-teaching myself to code. And then once I kind of got a good handle on that and I built a few applications that made the company a lot of money, I realized that, you know, this was kind of my calling. I had previously had some companies that i had started that didn't work out and that I still had that very much feeling, especially as I was at a company that had grown so much during my time there and it wasn't mine. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to build an HR software. I understand HR really well. There's a really big hole in this market because the HR software isn't really built for people who are managing. It's more built just for HR. It's not really built for executives or, you know, it's not cohesive. A lot of the tools are kind of spread out around and you have to buy a bunch of softwares and piece them together. So, yeah. So then I basically started building Management. I had one developer at first, me and him would just code every day after work. And then we did that for about a year and a half. I got about 10 or so beta companies who started testing it about five months in. And then about five months ago, yeah, I quit my job and just started doing humanagement full time.
1: Going back to the self-teaching programming, there's obviously a lot of computer programming languages, right? For example, Mm -hmm. Ruby on Rails is a big one from what I remember. So how did you know which languages to learn and how did you get past the learning curve?
0: So I'm a firm believer that necessity predates a lot of innovation, a lot of drive. It's one of the reasons why I love hiring people who are not as experienced for roles because they are going to push themselves or not push themselves into those challenges and you learn a lot that way. So first, the language, the first language I started learning was Python. And that was because the software company we had originally hired developed in Python. So the things I was fixing were in Python and therefore that's what I needed to learn. So it was really like necessity level at that point because we already had developers and code that I needed to understand. So I don't really understand Python as well as I understand React is the main language that I understand at this point. And so with React... I like it because it's very visual. It's a JavaScript language for people who understand that. On the front end, it's very interactive. And the team that I had was more based in Python and I didn't have as much skills in the front end area. That's really what I care about. I care about user interface, user interaction, how people are going to touch and feel it. And so, yeah, that passion for that was why I then went into React. Actually, at one point, said, you know what, I think that there's another language, which I'm trying to remember now. Nope, can't remember. it. There was another language and I actually completely stopped doing React and then I switched over to it only to go, well, eh, I'm gonna go back to React. But there's a lot of research that goes into this stuff, like the languages you're gonna use. You mentioned Ruby on Rails and I found that Ruby on Rails was kind of a flash in the pan. So Python, as far as like a backend language, hope I'm not getting too technical for people, but as far as a backend language, Python is older, right? Python's been rocking it longer, uh, from what I see, longer than Ruby on Rails. And there was a moment when Ruby became like really the thing, like that's what people were building in. And now I never really hear about it anymore. It's basically gone. It's gone back to Python. So a lot of people might have jumped on that Ruby train thinking, okay, this is the, now the new languages because these are always evolving. And then they would have ended up with some code that'd be hard to manage and harder to hire for so, yeah, th- what I learned was really more based upon like where there were developers, what applications were being built on it and, you know, how useful that language would be into the future. And so that's then what I decided to learn.
1: So you self-taught yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you do it? Did you like stay disciplined saying like, I'm going to practice one hour a day on top of my job? Like, What was your plan to get to a certain level?
0: So... Originally, I had another friend who was going to build my, like, co found my software with me. He ended up deciding that he didn't need a whole nother thing in his life. He he has a good work life balance. And so, when we were first going, it was really slow moving because we were trying to figure out just that. How would we stay? How would we have the wins that would keep propelling us in this journey? And so, he left that world pretty soon, and I was kind of on my own. And I basically didn't try to learn programming before building applications that were going to matter. I started going, I'm going to build this software. So I didn't spend time trying to build like a, you know, a to-do list app or a lot of these kind of basic projects. I didn't worry about that at all. I would find videos online or whatever, people teaching things Then I would immediately, instead of trying to do their little application they were building, I would try to figure out how to apply what they were saying to what I was trying to build. And then I would try to build it. The first developer that I hired was actually, someone who approached me as a tutor, because he saw I was asking a lot of questions on forums of how to do stuff. And he said, hey, you know, if you pay me, whatever, I can do some tutoring. And I went, great. Actually, I would love to pay you to build my application. And so from then on, that's the only place where I would say maybe I'm not fully self-taught because my friend Kazim did teach me some of the basics as I would go. You know, he set up my coding platform and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was just me. But Yeah, it was more like the necessity that pushed me through, not like just playing around, but like I'm building a statistics app to sell it. I will therefore need to figure out how to do whatever I need to in order to build this program.
1: I think it goes back to the why power, right? Like you focus on, this is my goal and this is what I need to do to get there. Some people say, oh, I want to make more money so I'll do computer programming, but it's not really a strong enough why power for them to continue. And then they end up just uh, dropping off, right? What are your thoughts on these... uh, bootcamps, does they've been very popular in recent years? Like offering like, oh, you're gonna make way more money if you do a computer program, we'll do like a bootcamp, a data science is a big one, UX, UI design. What's your thoughts Mm on those?
0: I think bootcamps are good. I think that one of the reasons why something like that can be beneficial is you're going to get a really good understanding of the coding world very fast. Whereas when you self-taught, you don't fully understand that world and what that career is going to be like. So To take a little bit of a higher overview, I would say when you're thinking about a career transition, I've done a few. I've done like, although I've always stayed in the HR, the industries that I've operated in have been very far between, right? And so like I went from being a tour manager to working at an investment firm. So, you know, I've definitely made my transitions. And so I think that you have to really think about the ways that that job is going to impact your life. And so getting a good understanding of what that job will be like is really important to that, more important than gaining the skills. So like in, I forget which country, I think it was in Denmark I was in a while ago, and I was talking to some younger people and they were saying that it's really common there to do a gap year prior to going to college rather than starting college and then taking your gap year somewhere in between or not at all. It's very, very common for someone to to not go to college for there to be a gap between finishing high school and maybe two or three years before going to college. And the reason why they do that is because they try out a lot of different jobs and careers before deciding what they need to get more skills. And so I would always recommend that approach to someone who's thinking about making that transition. You know, if you're going, hey, I want to be a coder, I want to do this, maybe you'll make more money, maybe, sure. But you also could be miserable. And no amount of money will ever be worth you being miserable. There's some people who love coding. They love it. It brings them so much joy to just sit there in the dark in front of a computer, not having to interact with people, being able to focus on themselves. There's people who love that. There's people who hate that. Like if I was just a coder, I would be miserable. Personally, I would not be able to do that because I like people too much. I like wearing the different roles. The reason why I've learned so many skills in my life is because I always know that it's important for me to manage someone, for me to know that role. If it was just me trying to learn to code just for the sake of coding because it's a great industry, I never would have made it. Full transparency. I wouldn't have made it. But because I knew that I wanted to build the software and I wanted to have that company and I knew that it was going to be programming, I therefore had to learn to code so that when I'm interviewing someone or when I'm leading or you know get motivating someone, I can speak on their level. I understand exactly what they're talking about exactly what they're going through. I'm
1: not a big fan of like quitting too soon, right? What I'm trying to get at is there's... Obviously going to be a steep learning curve, especially with coding, because coding is learning a new language. So what's the difference between someone quitting because they realize it's not for them compared to quitting too soon when they didn't give it enough time to get better? Mm.
0: This is a good parenting question. I would say that there's two types of feelings where you go, I don't want to do this anymore, right? So I used to play basketball as a kid. I, I loved basketball. I played basketball very competitively for five or six years. I traveled around Florida as a, you know, young teenager playing basketball. And at one point I said, this is what my career will be. I will be a professional basketball player. I'm quite tall and whatever, right? And at one point I decided, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it was after a long time in being actually pretty good at basketball. But I ran into a situation for me where I realized that I liked basketball when I was younger because there were so few serious basketball players and I was so tall that I was easily better than everyone else. And so I liked just being that good at something. And when it became more competitive and I was playing against all the other kids who were the best in their neighborhoods, that wasn't fun for me anymore because I only really enjoyed being better than everyone else, just being honest, right? So that was where I went, yeah, cool. I don't want to do this job anymore because I'd realized that the parts of it that made me happy were no longer there. And so that's a good reason to not do a job, right? If you can say the things that make me happy are X and this doesn't provide X, then that's a good reason to quit. And so that's what I would say is kind of the difference like with coding. When you start, you look it up and you go, okay, the solitude, the creativity of it, you know, learning the rules and being able to, you know, it's like algebra, right? So if those things are important to you and you like it, and then you start and you feel that exist, and then you run into, I'm really confused about this language, yeah, don't quit. But if it doesn't have the things that make you happy, then why do it?
1: For sure. How tall are you, by the way, since you said you play basketball?
0: (laughs) I'm basically 6'3". I'm a little bit under. And... That's not especially tall, but what is true is that when I was 14, I think I was 6'1", as a 14-year-old. And so I would have been really tall. My grandfather on both sides was 6'5". I was definitely taller than they were at that age. And usually people grow a lot in their teenage years. So 14 is like not where you're going to end. But what I did was when I decided around 14, 15 that I didn't want to be a basketball player anymore, I intentionally stunted my growth. So I had looked up on... I don't think Google existed at the time, but Yahoo or whatever. And I found you drink coffee, you do uh negative gravity, you do uh certain types of activities, those things spend your growth. So I would sit and do a headstand in my bedroom for 30 minutes every single day for like two or three years. And from like the age of 15 to the age of 21, when people usually stop growing, I only grew one inch. So I mean, I'm tall, I'm definitely not short, but I'm not basketball tall, but it's very much intentionally. I decided I didn't want to be that tall because I saw my grandfathers walk through doors and hit their heads and be on airplanes. And I said, you know what, this is good. I'm good at
1: 6'2", 6'3". Do you think that actually worked or it was just genetics? No, no, I mean, it it 100% worked. Oh, nice. (laughs) I didn't know that was possible, but a lot of people want to get taller, especially men. And you actually Mm -hmm. wanted to stay where you were. So it's kind of a- Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: I'm tall. Like I'm not, I'm definitely not short by any means. So like, I just didn't need to get taller you know, being six, seven, which was basically what the doctors had been saying was like the trajectory I was at, like six, seven sucks. Like the world is not built for six, seven people. Like, you know, cars, doors, beds, like at six, three, six, two, like those are already problems with your feet hanging off. And, you know, so anyways, obviously you can tell I'm a very intentional person. I think <laughs> things yeah. a
1: lot. Going back to the dating example, women tend to prefer men who are six foot. So you've already passed it. So that's good enough for you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In terms of running your own company right now, how many employees do you have right now at your company?
0: So right now we're five.
1: Okay. Let's say you hire them already, right? What do you look Mm -hmm. for in an employee that you like for the foreseeable future? You mean like when I'm hiring them or as I'm working with them? As you're working with them, what do you like in your employees as you continue working with them? Like, what do you look for?
0: I look for... What would be the word for it? Actually, let me take a step back.
1: How do you choose who to promote after you hire them? Oh, gotcha.
0: So... Obviously, is isn't as big of a thing at Humanagement human because it's a very young company, but because I do have a lot of experience of hiring and promoting people at a lot of the companies they've been at. So the first thing you want to make sure when you're trying to think of someone to promote is promoting the best producer is usually not the best idea, right? So if you have like a sales team and there's a guy who's just killing in sales every week, he doubles everyone else's sales, putting him in that leadership role is not going to make everyone else double their sales. It's more likely going to make him half his sales and now you're going to be out of money, right? So if you're promoting someone to like a managerial role, you want to look for someone who is a people person who gets people and moreover gets the department. So if they're in there and you're looking at kind of that like increased role that way, then you want to make sure that they have picked up on the ways of the department because that observational skill is one of the most crucial things to a manager, right? A manager is someone who can, pick up on the smallest little differences or changes in personality, and then can handle those and help strategize. So you want that very strategic mind, even if they're not a great performer, looking for someone that everyone gets along with, that is intelligent, has good insight, and that's who you're going to look for in that role. As far as just people to like, when you're talking about giving people maybe a higher title or more money, you really want to make sure you track your production. So like this is something that my software management really helps people with that I haven't seen a lot of softwares do. So if you have a company, you have employees, you really want to make sure that you give all of them at least one metric, right? So you, if you have someone in a barista, you want to make sure they measure how many coffee cups they make, or you have someone and they're a chair maker. you want to make sure they measure weekly how many chairs they make or how many sales they make or how much money they do. Right. And so if you measure these things weekly, then you get a really nice way to analyze how valuable that person is compared to how valuable they used to be. And now looking at that change in value, you can then afford to give them more money or decide to fire them. So having metrics and being able to use that to determine your employees is paramount. And so, yeah, that's something that management makes stupid easy for companies.
1: Awesome. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me in terms of like providing hiring advice for people who are looking for, new work and potentially pivot their careers. So I like to end my podcast conversations with my guests with this question. As -hmm. you know, my podcast is about helping professionals overcome career challenges. So what has been one big career challenge that you had to overcome at some point during your career to get to where you are today?
0: That's such a good question. Big challenge that I've had to overcome. I don't know how clear this will come across in the description, but there's a time to learn and then there's a time to act. And so it's something that I've always struggled with and I've noted a few times in the past of my career where I acted when I should have learned and I learned when I should have acted. And so some of the times where I made some of the biggest changes positively in my career, like when investment company was having some trouble in the first year or two, and then we got into a really nice rhythm where we were having regular, very successful growth, that was me deciding to go into a more of an educational role. I spent at least six hours every Monday just reading. Wall on the clock, I would just find books and stuff about managerial advice or sales or marketing, and I would just read. And spending that time on that education was the right thing for that moment. It took me a little bit to realize that. I didn't jump into that educational side in that point of my career and for probably two months too late, but I was still able to do it. And at other times, I've spent too much time trying to educate, trying to learn when I had the tools I needed at that time to be able to succeed. So it's something that I still struggle with for sure. And I think, but it is something that I've also figured out more than I did maybe five years ago, but knowing the right times to learn and to focus on building your skills versus the time to just use your skills and then just, you know, take the business or the problem, you know, straight on.
1: Awesome. Again, I really appreciate the time, Austin, for coming on and sharing your career insights. So, how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you could potentially help them?
0: So, the easiest way is to go to humanagement.io, which is the website. So, h-u-m-a-n-a-g-e-m-e-n-t.io, and so you can go there. You can set up for the software. You can also send us an email. So, if you have some questions, feel free to ask, even if it's nothing related to the software. I also have a Twitter. I'm pretty active on which is at Austin M.
1: Kern. Thanks, Austin. Appreciate the time.